Shelly, Shalosh Pinot, Shalosh Pinot, Shelly, the in lo hai, you lo, Shalosh Pinot, lo hai, as a Shelly, you'd keep singing it and then you'd end up just going, hop. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan, I love going first. And Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. This is America, Liel. Speak English. <laughs> Today's Jew of the Week is is a, a two-headed Jew, the stars of the off-Broadway show The Other Josh Cohen, which is playing for another couple weeks and which all three of us have seen and adored. And our Gentile of the Week is GQ sports and politics and fatherhood columnist Drew McGarry. He, he writes about, about just about everything. He has a book out about dadhood, and uh, he's hilarious. So uh, two Jews, one Gentile, lots of fun. Three opinions. Three, three opinions. On bagels. No collusion. And um, in terms of what's up, I'll just start by saying that, you know, Stephanie, you got the ball rolling with the Josh Cohen thing. You went to see this off-Broadway show, the other Josh Cohen, and you came back on on a cloud of... Uh, Stephanie could not have not seen a Broadway show called The Other Josh Cohen. I mean, it was like tailor-made for Stephanie. I was like, is this, is, is Ben Cohen the other Josh Cohen? Like, what, what's the situation? <laughs> yeah, I went to see it. I, I brought Colette. I felt, I felt, I talk about this later, but like, I felt joy. And I just was like, I was happy. And I was right. like, you guys have to see this. It's just so sweet and earnest and so lovely. So then I saw your face. Uh, and, and now I, I don't do that often. I know. And like I, who really, I mean, re- there are very few things that I truly despise. Theater is one of those <laughs> things that really does oh, do not, you feel about, does not spark joy. I didn't know that. Do yeah. you feel about theater the way I feel about museums? I was just going to say not, that. I don't, it's not your jam? I don't like being too close to actors. <laughs> Uh, you know why? There's a movie. Like, there's a perfectly good solution for that that I could watch <laughs> on my couch and could have cool effects. But oh, seeing, I seeing Stephanie more. smile, I, I for went the first to see, time ever. Right, I went to see this thing. Uh, it really restores your your faith in mankind. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful play. And if you like Neil Diamond, which why wouldn't you? But you don't have to like you, you don't have to like Neil Diamond, but it helps. A lot. Right. I mean, I took I took Rebecca and I took my in-laws uh, to see it. So the four of us went. And um, I don't think Rebecca really knew who Neil Diamond was, though, when I pointed out that he sang Sweet Caroline, which, you know, she as a sports fan knows because that's weirdly <laughs> become an anthem at every live sporting event. Um, that excited her. And she sort of knew who Darth Vader was. But Darth Vader also functions uh, in the play. But it didn't really matter. I mean, she totally got it. The play is a delight. It, it's playing till, I think, April 7th um, at... Um, at this theater on the west side, and and then it's going to tour the universe forever. Um, but it was really, it was just, it was and, just swell. And we should tell our listeners, this is not a main endorsement. This is just us loving a play as we would any play that contains the line, "Bashert, motherfuckers." <laughs> it's <laughs> almost right. as good as Bray Prehagafen, bitches. We're really going down that road. Anyway, you will hear more uh, from David Rosmer and and Steve Rosen, who play the Josh Coeds uh, in, in a little bit. Um, Stephanie, uh, how is the new, newly geolocated uh, Butnick Cohen life, the new residence? 
I will say I was late this morning because it's so much harder for me to leave my apartment now that there are like several different <laughs> rooms. I also keep losing things. So we were in a studio for about four or five years. Um, loved it. It was an amazing, amazing place. Great location. We found a place it's about two blocks away, which is like the radius I was willing to move. So one bedroom. It's like a pretty size of. I mean, it's. I, I don't. I, I'm just so. My sense of space is so. so distorted so i was just like this place is huge like ben what is this uh, it's the bedroom <laughs> stephanie there's a bedroom it's really crazy but a the, separate room for your bed <laughs> but the thing is like okay so i'm a checker like before i leave the apartment i check everything before i go to sleep i check everything i check the the of the stove the oven ben's like we don't use the oven i don't know why you're checking it all the time like the lights so in this apartment there's so many more things to check that it just takes me a longer time to get out but I will say the cat has been like remarkably docile since the move. He was I like, was going to ask how Cat Stevens is adjusting. The first day he spent the entire day in the, the bathroom cupboard, which is a new thing that I have a, a cupboard in the bathroom, like that thing under the sink. Um, so he spent most of the day in there. He finally like emerged from the closets and under the bed. But he's been very relaxed and he'll even like let Ben pet him. Wouldn't it be amazing if the moral of the story is that he's actually a really happy cat who just didn't like living in like a really tiny hundred square foot hovel? Well, it's he funny. just wanted a middle. He just wanted a middle class lifestyle, basically. Yeah, he wanted to. He was like ready to upwardly mobilize. It's funny yeah. because Ben was saying, you know, in the old apartment, he looked like more of a menace because anywhere you were, you were like, oh, where, where are you going? Where like, but in this apartment, he looks like this tiny little cat, and I'm like, you're so cute. So anyway, things are going really well in my life. Excellent. Liel, are things going well in your life? Things are going so well. Uh, this week has been, this past week has been the moth week uh, in, in the Leibowitz household. First of all, um, some of our listeners may have heard my story about my, shall we say, misbehaved father. Uh, that story is included in the newly released, just out last week, uh, The Moth Presents Occasional Magic. Uh, true stories about defying the impossible. So if you want to read the story and other stories by Krista Tippett and Roseanne Cash and Ophira Eisenberg, who is our guest on the show, and a lot of others, you should check it out. But also, last Friday, I told a brand new story uh, on The Moth, and it was special for two reasons. First of all, it was in Lincoln Center, uh, and and my story did include a, a bit of singing, so now I get to say that I sang on stage at Lincoln Center. But, performed. But the, the, the weirdest thing was, so I, I don't want to give away too much of the story um, because I, I hope, you know, our listeners would listen to it when it comes out. But it involved an interaction I had with, with a woman who, you know, passed away. And I wanted to be very respectful of that woman. So I gave zero details. You cannot identify this person if you just listen to the story. And I come back to my seat. This is Lincoln Center. It's like a big place. And I chose a seat completely at random because I knew I was going to be on stage. So I just picked like a seat in the fourth row that would be you know, convenient to get up and down. And you, I, where you left your backpack, basically. Right. And I get back to my seat and the woman sitting next to me, it's a complete stranger, is crying. It's like sobbing hysterically. And I was like, you know, my story was sad, but it wasn't that sad. Like, <laughs> I'm a good storyteller. I'm not that good a storyteller. So I ask her like, hey, you know, if everything okay? And she looks at me and she's a very striking looking woman. And she's wearing this kind of like Native American like shirt with beads. And, and she's looking at me and she said, the woman you were talking about, was it blankety blank? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yes, it was. This is the freakiest thing. This woman intuited via the, the vo cosmic vibes of the universe that I was talking about her friend who she knew well, who, you know, 
played a major part in her life. And I, I'm sitting there completely dumbfounded. And then, of course, the first thing I do is I text the two of you saying, hey, can you believe it? And then I, I, I tell <laughs> you, Mark, the name of the woman that I had talked to, the person sitting next to me. And you're like, oh, you mean my college roommate? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. she lived upstairs. She lived upstairs. I, right. I intuited from the little information you gave me who the woman sobbing next to you was. So basically, we're all in this in this web of of connectivity in the universe that goes back to to the moth uh, and 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 to and to God and to God and to God. That, and to that the was so spirit. Leo, you should uh, one of one of my proudest things is that I introduced you to Catherine Burns of the Moth. Um, and you are now like, it's like, if she can't get David Sedaris, then she gets Adam Gopnik. And if she can't get Gopnik, she gets Liel Leibowitz. Like well, you're, if you can get Gopnik, there are like 30 other people, but probably like number 63 <laughs> is me. And I'm very proud because I, I love, I love, I love these guys. And I'm so grateful to you for the introduction. And Mark, do you feel like he's taken over your moth sta- status? Basically, I mean, I still, you know, <laughs> allow me to plug that I still, I still run this storytelling event with Catherine Burns at 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 Yale Thread, uh, thread.yale.edu. We're doing it again this June, and Catherine comes, and the magic she works, talking about storytelling and and how how it moves people and how it it changes lives is, you know, I hear it every year at that event. But then Liel has this story that's like he sits down in his seat and literally the woman is sobbing next to him. That's it was too much. Too much. Will we ever get to hear that story, Liel? Are they going to put that on their national show? I, I hope so. God willing. Inshallah, as you would say. Um, speaking of performing, I just want to run something by you guys and the whole J crew. Um, so I teach this lecture class in creative writing and and to undergrads. And about three weeks ago, a student came up to me and said, um, Mr. Oppenheimer, we're raising money for this do-gooder organization, uh, helps homelessness, um, and and our fundraiser, based on a fundraiser they've done at that other Ivy League university at Harvard, is that we ask faculty members to perform uh, in a stand-up comedy show. Would you be willing to do <laughs> 10 or 12 minutes of stand-up comedy uh, along with these four or five other faculty members who have already agreed to do it. And I had this moment where I thought, well, well, shit, like, A, I'm flattered. Like, I have a hard time saying no to anything, right? Um, that's how I'm, you I'm end up of, at, like, know. Brigham Young University several times a year. <laughs> that's right. Like, I have, like it's just like, nice to be wanted. It's just like, wait, will you buy me a, will you buy me a Frappuccino? I'm in. Um, but then I, and so I said yes. And then I thought about it and I thought, wait a second. Literally everything that I think is funny is something that will offend these students and probably get me fired. <laughs> like there is no bit of my sense of humor. Like my sense of humor was forged in like Harold Ramis movies exactly. of the early in the 80s. 80s. <laughs> like, what are the 80s? 80s? So then I so then I I tracked this student down and I said I, I said like Sarah, I have a problem. I'm going to be honest with you, right? I said, "You do understand that the stuff that 44-year-old men who grew up on 80s teen sex comedies find funny is not stuff that your generation jams with comfortably. And she, at first she didn't know what I was talking about. And then I sort of explained to her, I was like, well, do you think like, you know, jokes about women's anatomy are funny? And do you think that jokes about like, do you think bullying's funny? <laughs> like we used to think bullying was hilarious, right? So I slowly tick off the nine things I think are funny and her face slowly falls. And then finally she's like, well, 
I'm sure you yeah, can find the time it. You got like, one, <laughs> boobs. By the time you got a rectal cancer, she was like, yeah, no, you, right. you probably should not do this show. No, well, that's what I was hoping. I was hoping I was going to get off the hook. And instead, she like, her face slowly sank and sank and sank. And at the end, her smile like picked up again. She said, well, you're really good. I'm sure you'll find a way to walk that line. <laughs> so I, I think that the I've recent like, college scandal gave you a, a really huge opening. It's like, did you well, ever notice how you're only here because your dad paid $300,000 <laughs> to admissions? I will say that that uh, the, the material I'm working on as I do dishes every night, the, the material that I'm mumbling to myself in my head, uh, d- doesn't it doesn't not deal with the fact that you could buy your way onto a, a fake no-show position on Yale soccer team. So, <laughs> but guys, just uh, assure me here that I'm not actually going to end my career oh, and my I life love it. I mean, by doing stand-up will. for undergrads. And I, I want to say it probably won't be worth it. I think that's right. I, I would like to attend this this event if oh, I yeah, can. Oh, yeah, definitely go. I mean, here's the thing is like the best case scenario is that I do okay, right? That I don't that I don't cancel my existence on Twitter with with jokes that offend undergrads and that the other faculty members are like plausible, right? Like the best case scenario is it's an evening of mediocre stand-up comedy and the worst case scenario is you never hear from me again. So, to news of the Jews. Michael Steinhardt, the Jewish billionaire mega donor, they're always called mega donors. He's a he's a mega donor. Has been uh, the subject of a big article in the a New York Times. A mega article. Mega article, which um, tells more about the mega allegations that were reported in the Jewish Week earlier this year, which is that he's a creepazoid sexual harasser, allegedly, who makes comments to female uh, underlings about how they should reproduce and have more babies and also maybe invited a couple of them into a threesome at one point. And... You know, there's not a lot to say about this. It's obviously creepy. If, if true, it's like completely horrible. Um, you know, I guess it's just a big full disclosure from the entire Jewish community that we've all in some way benefited from his money. I mean, in my case, uh, he's one of the major funders of the birthright trip to Israel. I went on that birthright trip. Um, I now feel like my birthright trip was 3% was ickier than wrong. it already was. Um I don't, you know. Bedouin tonight will never look so wholesome again, is what you're saying. (laughs) The interesting thing, the article in the New York Times was by Hannah Dreyfus, who was a former tablet intern, and Sharon Otterman. And it was with a series in conjunction with ProPublica. And the interesting thing is how hard it is to get people to talk on the record for these types of stories, because you realize that actually what you said, he does fund a lot of organizations and there are a lot of women who didn't give their name for fear of having professional backlash. And I think it's it's really it's sad, but it's good that we're exposing the fact that like a lot of the Jewish world is sort of incestuous in the way that like there's a few funders and they do a ton of projects and then you can like by virtue of where you fall on this food chain, like you might not be able to speak out because you're the or the funder of your organization or a partial funder or a big donor is is this person. You know what, Stephanie Butnick, that's I'm so glad you pointed that out. That's totally true. I have another point I want to make about Jewish funding. There's only a few donors who actually give it and they tend to be of a particular ideology and they tend to be bullies. And so if you don't get like the, the you know, if you're not getting Steinhardt money or Bronfman money or Schusterman money or Singer money or whatever, there aren't so many other options because a lot of the Jews who would be a little more 
let's say, liberal or free thinking or whatever on certain of these topics don't give to Jewish causes, right? So David Geffen is a billionaire Jew, but he's not going to fill in the money that Michael Steinhardt or Sheldon Adelson yanks out from under you. So the donors who do consistently give to Jewish causes have this outsized influence because actually there aren't that many of them. So yes, I mean, Stephanie's completely right, which is part of the story here is, you know, that a few funders basically can get away with what they want for all. And there are whispers about Steinhardt for a long, 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 long time. So anyway, on to some happier news. Um, Liel, do you want to take us across the pond, if not to Belgium, perhaps to a neighboring country, say Germany? This week, uh, I I really, I don't, I don't know how we would ever top this. Um, I'm just going to read the headline. This is from the New York Post this morning. Family behind Krispy Kreme, Panera Bread, Einstein Brothers Bagels admits to Nazi ties. The German family behind Krispy Kreme Donuts, Panera Bread, Predamanje, and Einstein Brothers Bagels has finally come clean about the reported connection to the Nazis. It is all correct, said Reimann family spokesperson Peter Half, one of the two managing partners of JAB Holdings, a private conglomerate. So it's nothing to gloss over, he said. These crimes are disgusting. <laughs> we wish to apologize for the bread bowl in Panera. They were all built by concentration camp prisoners. <laughs> and also, what we call the baked potato soup is just 940 calories. It is not a good soup at all. Oh, wait, now you're getting into, like, faux Indian here. Dude, Einstein <laughs> Brothers Bagels. Like, what else proof do you need that is, like, the worst bagel in the universe? Literally Nazi bagels. Literally Nazi bagels. The story is that these iconic American brands, I mean, Krispy Kreme, for crying out loud, A, are controlled by a German conglomerate, which yeah, I didn't know. They're literally just poisoning us with like chemicals and making us fat. And B, it's a German conglomerate that used slave labor during World War II. Right. You think you've won the war, but we have Panera. We have ways of making you pay. <laughs> so my favorite thing, so the Washington Post article, is a, like the headline is a little bit more concise. It says, German billionaire family that owns Einstein Brothers bagels admits Nazi past. As though like, which of them would be the most like cutting? Like the bagel right. people have a Nazi past? They were like, who cares about yeah. Krispy Kreme? <laughs> I mean, I actually thought there were two brothers named Einstein in the kitchen boiling the bagels. I mean, it's like really called like Noah Einstein Company Holdings at this point. Obersturmenführer Einstein und his brother. But basically, the story here is actually really kind of kind of interesting. Um, that the the grandparents or whatever they were, the the senior and the junior of the family who are both um, dead, that they were involved in Nazi era stuff, and they were like avowed anti semites, and they were really into Hitler. But the family, and it's unclear if this happened once reporters started digging, but the family apparently like commissioned a historian to find out their what was sort of what the situation was, which meant they probably knew something. I mean, look, like these were like rich Germans who were running companies in the Nazi era who were not hassled. So you have to imagine, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like I'm not super surprised, but basically, this um, this historian is like hasn't it's. It's uh, Paul Erker of Munich University. He was commissioned in 2014 to study the family's ties to the Nazi regime. And he says <laughs> he is he hasn't finished his research yet, but he, he does not have an exact date when he expected to have his report ready. He hasn't found the really bad stuff yet. Right. You know what I'm imagining? <laughs> you, you know that famous uh, movie clip that has gone viral from that movie Downfall of Hitler in the bunker about to commit suicide, realizing the war was lost. You, you know that one with Bruno Gantz? And Hitler. they always like yeah, change yeah. it to right. other things now. And they always now. have like the meme about it. Like I'm imagining this like, the two brothers of this family being like, 
everything is, you know, we've lost the war. It's like, don't worry. One day we will take every food stuff they hold dear and turn it into <laughs> crap you could get at airports. And but basically they're donating, the family's donating like 10 million euros, they say, to, uh, to an organization. So How about unorthodox? I, think, family, I was going to say, now that... Now that you can no longer launder your, your evil past by giving to the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, how about if you want, you know, if you want to expiate and, and wash away your past sins, just, I mean, give to a Jewish podcast, really. It, we, we will we'll no have you way. on. You can talk about how terrible you feel. Um, you know, we'll hug it out. Yeah. I also have some Holocaust slash Nazi related news. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. It's just one of those weeks. Has it been, by the way, a week in which we did not have Nazi-related news? I don't think there was. In three years, I don't think there's been a single week without and a Nazi they news. They are just the gift that keeps on giving. I know. That I mean, keeps I would debate that a little bit. Gedanke, yeah. So, okay, here's a tweet from DW News, and it says, The Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum has implored visitors to respect the memories of the 1.1 million people who were killed at the concentration camp and not to balance on the train tracks. So apparently, instead of like selfies at Auschwitz, the new thing is people posing on the freaking train tracks. And I'm looking at a slide two of them, and it's like people balancing, people smiling cutely while sitting on them. And you're like, you're literally, Leo, look at this photo. This is just like a cute little girl, her face is blurred, sitting, like posing on the train tracks to Auschwitz. And being like, you know what? This would actually make a really good gram. Take the last train to Auschwitz and I'll meet you. In- On Instagram. <laughs> um, no, I think that this, so this is like one of those. This happens all the time. But I will say, like, remember how Gabby Gershenson last week was saying, like, there's something about, like, the fluidity of, of Jewish food. The lot like maybe this is what's going to keep people coming to these memorial sites. And like they now Insta- they have Instagram? no, like now they have photos of them posing there. So now everyone's kind of like aware, like at least we're. I don't know. I want to find something good in this story. Longtime listeners of this show know that there um, are few human beings whom I deplore uh, more than Nazis. Uh, one possible contender for that role would be uh, Barbara Streisand. Um, <laughs> wow. Let's face it. Wow. Shots fired over here. All right. That's not fair. It's more just that, like, at least we can all agree Nazis are bad. Whereas Streisand, people, some people think she's just fabulous. Um, my argument has long been that she has a, she has really good pipes, right? She can she can carry a tune. And for, like, <laughs> three so decades. But instead of using her pipes, she's busy curating her doll museum in her basement while James Brolin lovingly looks on and holds one of their cloned micro dogs. I, I just think it's such a waste of a talent. It's, it's, it's Hilul Hashem. It's like God, it's spitting in God's face when you've been given that talent. Now, as if to prove her utter worthlessness uh, in Okay, this contemporary- is getting, I, can I just, I mean, Barbara Streisand is amazing. Like someone needs to say that here. Nope, not me. I you guys are such monsters. You guys must She's just got be really pipes. sexist. I stand with Mark. She could totally ma- Yep, she can match pitch, right? She'd be a great high school music teacher. Oh I nominate God. her for the Glee reboot. Everyone write anyway, in and tell Mark he's wrong. See if your defense holds up after we we remind our listeners, our beloved listeners in the J Crew, that this week Barbara Streisand um, told reporters about Michael Jackson, quote, his sexual needs were his sexual needs coming from whatever childhood he has or whatever DNA he has. You can say molested, but those children, as you heard say, they were thrilled to be there. They both married and they both have children. So it didn't kill them. Now, what's so great about this, Stephanie Taylor Butnick, is that it kind of dovetails with my criticism of her, which is that instead of remaining an engaged, committed artist and doing good work, she's like, f- like 
flittered away into that ethosphere of celebrity, like nonsensical uselessness that that happens to really rich and famous people when they don't take their own talents seriously. And now she's saying utterly inane things, excusing Jacko because they were sort of weird celebrity friends, the way that he was friends with like Ricky Schroeder and the way that all celebrities pretend to be friends on the red carpet. Like she's become a non-human. And, I, you know, what, what can one say? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think this is obviously a misstep and something really awful to say. I don't think that this, like, detracts from the canon of Barbara Streisand's work. I think that, like, she said a dumb thing, and I imagine she'll be apologizing for it. I am in favor of all of us buying as many of her records as we were going to buy anyway. I agree. It shouldn't affect her career. But wait, what's a record? Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand is amazing. Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. Last week, we sat down with David Rossmer and Steve Rosen, the two stars of The Other Josh Cohen, which Stephanie Butnick had seen and was urging us to see. And at the time of this interview, Liel and I had not yet seen the show, uh, but we had a wonderful conversation with them nonetheless. Have a listen. We are here with two Jews, David Rossmer and Steve Rosen. From Hello. The, from the other Josh Cohen. It's an off-Broadway show they co-wrote the book, music, and lyrics for, and that they co-star in as the same character. Welcome, Steve and David. Hi. Hello. Yay. We're so happy to be here. Hi, everybody. Please sit down. Sit down. What was your note on stage? Were you guys? Josh Cohen and yes. Josh Cohen. That's right. Hi. So you guys play the same character, Josh Cohen, in the show, but I want to give you the chance to introduce yourself separately here for our for our listeners. I mean, we can, but frankly, we are literally been attached at the hip for like the last seven months. It does feel weird. We're sitting across the table from each other, and I yeah, feel- we're too far. We're too far. <laughs> okay, so inter- tell us who you are. All right, I'm David Rossmer. I play Josh Cohen in the present, telling the story of what happened to me one year ago when the world was essentially crapping on me from every direction. And I play, my name is Steve Rosen, and I play the same exact character one year ago while the world is crapping on him relentlessly. And we get to interact with each other, and it's about watching someone sort of talk and deal with themselves in the past, which we all wish we could do sometimes. Give ourselves advice, tell ourselves life will be okay a year later. Um, While in in the actual moment, you see the pain of actually going through that uh, with someone who is able to provide hindsight into how this was a necessary part of the journey. And a lot of humor about it. Okay, so Stephanie has seen the show. And loved it. I mean, yeah, the second I was like smiling and in the and I was like, when I've never smiled. Like I was like literally smiling the whole time, and I was like, this feels weird on my face. <laughs> what is happening to me? Liel and I got this midnight emergency Slack message saying we have to have the Josh Cohens on our show. Aww. So, so, but for me and Liel Thank who have you. not seen it yet, yeah. though I think we're going to make a date to go see it together, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even with our wives. Um, tell us about the show. What 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 happens? I mean, it essentially answers the question of what would you do if a stranger sent you a check in the mail for $56,000. And it's the sort of trials and tribulations around Valentine's Day. So there's like sort of romantic comedy element to it, um, where it's like a perfect kind of date show too. Or if you're single, uh, a lot of couples have come out of it. And since we've done the show for a couple of years, we actually, the stage manager and the associate stage manager met and now have a child together. So it's the show is 
in a macro level, kind of a good luck. You charm. are J date basically. I, we are. We so are. we actually had like a J date night where like people came and met and and hooked up. Um, but, Theatrical J date. <laughs> but that's essentially the story. And he comes home on Valentine's Day to three letters in his mailbox: a Valentine's Day card from his mother, Aww. exactly, a bill for a bird clock Aww. that makes that that, he, that got stolen because at the beginning of the show, his apartment is completely robbed of everything but a Neil Diamond CD that he stole from the back of his parents' car. And the third letter is this sketchy little envelope with no return address. And inside is this enormous amount of money. And he has to sort of figure out if it's for him, if it's for someone else. And he goes on this crazy journey of twists and turns. And it's essentially a Job story, which you can say on a Jewish podcast. And everyone understands. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a story. Otherwise, I mean, unless it's, it's transcribed. Yeah, job story. job story. I hate my job. But it's essentially a Job story about someone who continues to try and do the right thing and continually pays the price for doing the right thing. And somehow in getting losing this thing he thought he needed finds what he actually needs. So how did you decide, you know, David, you get to play like happy Josh Cohen a year later. You're like fully evolved, fully realized. And Steve, you play like kind of like a schmuck. Like it's, things suck for you. I feel bad. How did you decide who who did what? That's so interesting. I thought it was the other way around. I thought I was the happier one. Um, it, it worked out just this way that David and I have, David and I have been playing together. We've known each other since we were like kids. We met at summer camp. Of course you did. At oh. French Woods in the Catskill what Mountains. You did Shout it, out to right? French Woods. Shout out to French Woods. Um, so we, you know, we've been sort of developing an onstage rapport and, and uh, working together for years and years. And one of the elements that we were thinking in, in basing a lot of the show, you know, the, the score sounds like a long lost Neil Diamond album because like David said, it's the only thing left in his apartment. Um, the real reason is that David plays the guitar and I don't. So uh, it was an important thing for narrator Josh to be able to be like a balladeer throughout the show, walking around looking slick, being able to play the guitar. Uh, and I could grow a much better mustache than David could. Yeah. By the uh, way, yeah, you could. <laughs> that is you. an impressive mustache. I appreciate that. And, and whereas, you. whereas you could someday learn to play the guitar, he'll never be able to grow that kind of mustache. That's it. exactly right. <laughs> and that's what I keep telling him whenever he keeps rubbing it in my face. But he has like a beard situation yeah. it's growing in totally. david's got a fantastic facial hair I have like situation. sort of you know culturally present semitic kind of straight up down the middle look scruff yeah. yeah scruff yeah or or also known as scruff scruff yeah. so, so well, you shave every day i mean you're you're, I do. you're totally well, harry's is a sponsor of this podcast yeah. and no one reads those ads with more gusto than i'm contractually <laughs> obligated to sh shave every day i also i mean this this segment is certainly if ever the segment that's not about me it's this one uh, I just like being smooth. I just was <laughs> in a bad mood to have scruff. So there, there, there's the long and the short of it. But back to you guys. So, uh, so you wrote, you co-wrote this play. Yeah, and that and that really is what he's saying is true because all the all the actors in the play, when you got which you guys will see when you come on your date, play instruments. So the entire cast is also kind of a rock band, and it's amazing to watch them. And it's why like tourists who don't even speak English are like love the show because you just see people switching instruments. Some people pay like twelve to. 15 instruments in the show you'll just see them with a clarinet and then a second later they're banging out on the drums and it's just like sort of magical Steve, you can't even play guitar <laughs> uh, no i play a bunch of other instruments in oh, real okay, life okay. but in the show i don't really play anything okay. but the cast it, it is if you only sort of play one instrument
instrument like right. I do. I play sort of two. Right. But if you only play one and you look at this cast and they're literally passing each other. We had one incident while we were trying to stage a number where we realized just the easier thing to do was if everyone just moved their instrument to the left and played that one instead. And they were able to do it instantly. And like they're all so gen they're all menchy and they're all like really creative and funny. And uh, it really does feel like a rock band. That is one thing that always struck me as like almost magical about like doing theater. You've been doing this a while now. Mm -hmm. How do you take the stage with the same gusto, with the same sense of wonder, with the same emotional attachment? This is not, you know, let's do four takes for the camera. This is night after night after night. There is a relentless Groundhog Day quality yeah. to being a theater actor. Um, this show in particular, I feel, some shows it's difficult to do that on a nightly basis. If it's like Long Day's Journey into Night, I have no idea how right. those people do that. <laughs> but our show Drink is- heavily. Well, that's it, right? This sh Our show is 90 minutes of nonstop like fun it is like a roller coaster ride to get on um, and it's, it is a workout in its way it is a 90 minute workout for us which is great but I get to work every day with my best friend telling a story that we thought of together that is making people like Stephanie smile. And who, I never smile. And she never <laughs> smiles. Never. And getting uh, getting to entertain people and make people feel better. After the show, this is such a, a strange phenomenon with this show. I've never experienced it on anything else I've done. That we would we get to the lobby after the show and there are strangers, people waiting for us there who felt that just the, nerd, the, the need to stay and talk to us about this experience that they've had that they've been moved by it in such a way that they were in a very low place. They needed to be reminded of the message. That Welcome we to, to our lives. And, and, then, and then you come out and be like, get out of my face. I'm done entertaining you, you I'm cretin. done. Yes. They forgot to take the green M&Ms out. So yes. I left it on the stage, folks. <laughs> so the play is called The Other Josh Cohen. I saw a, an ad for it on a taxi as I was on my yes. way here this morning. I was like, how do they know? Josh Cohen, what other names, like what other names were in the running besides Josh Cohen? And as Stephanie is married to Ben Cohen. I'm married to a Ben Cohen. She's really asking, did you think Ben Cohen? Did you think? <laughs> no, it's like uh, ben, ben Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah. I was thinking like Zach Goldberg. Well, you could have yeah. used any of your actual real names. Uh, your real names. <laughs> Steve, Steve Rosen. Steve Rosen. Rosen, I mean, totally. Like, what Zach else was Cohen in the running? Is obviously Dave taken. Ross were not as good. But but um, no, the, the, the truth is that Josh Cohen just felt like the Joe Smith of Jewish names, kind of is. which has a lot to do with the show because there's a lot of mistaken identity. But I will tell you, so that was the only name we it's ever thought I of. I should say that yeah. I have an ex-girlfriend who was Sarah Levine. So, so totally, you know, oh, I mean, yeah, no, like, there's, it's, there's a, there's a girl. Strong. Oh, I, I know her, I think. <laughs> oh, you totally yeah. know her. Yeah. She's listening right now. Oh, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Um, Josh Cohen proved immediately successful because Right after we first did the first incarnation, we got a call from the Josh Cohen we knew from summer camp. Nice. And he was like, please call me back. And I called him back and he was like, I'm very upset. I don't know why you would write a musical about me and not tell me. And we were like, Josh, we kind of knew you as an acquaintance, but we didn't know you. Well, of course, this is a story about us. We would never write a musical about you. And he said, oh, because I'm broke, I'm alone, and I like Neil Diamond. And we thought, okay, I think we have something a little more universal here than we thought. Yeah. And and later, NPR came and did a, a, a feature on our show, and they brought like 15 Josh Cohens to the show. And they said, do you know one of them went to summer camp with you? And we said, yes. And yeah. I told them that whole story. <laughs> and she looked at us like we had three heads and was like, no, 
that's not the Josh Cohen I'm talking about. There's another Josh Cohen. And he had also gone to summer camp. French Woods was just filled with it Josh Cohen. It's impossible not that's to right. be. Yeah, and there were he, there were like parallels with his life in the show. Yeah. So. Is that one of the those those theater theatery camps? It French is. Woods? It is. It is like is the keyword. Yeah, right? it sure is. They have a basketball team, but that's really just sort right. of a front for you yeah. know the modern dance the class. Court, the court needs resurfacing badly. Right? <laughs> yeah, they're not totally. they're not putting money into that court. I have to say, as somebody from all who, the theater games that get played on it, as somebody who's a bit of a of a less talented theater dork in you know in my in my youth no even oh yeah even i was terrified of i was like theater camp i bet those guys are real weirdos i mean that was that was like i should have gone because actually they were my people but i was afraid of what it would say about me if i went so i guess i'm saying mazel tov to you kudos to you thank, thank you, you. Thank for going you. for knowing your true selves and going well, to, i mean Let's be honest. It was our parents not wanting us yeah. home for seven weeks. <laughs> I had gone to Kutcher Sports Academy oh, for a few summers, and it was clearly in the wrong place. Kutcher's is where my father-in-law used to go to try to meet babes back in the, <laughs> back in the was, 50s. Right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You could ski there? Totally. <laughs> in the summer? No, you could do it in the That's summer. That's the appeal. Yeah, totally. Jews are so smart. <laughs> so do Josh Cohen's get free admission? Because they should. They get swag. Oh, they do? Yeah. yeah. If you come and your name is Josh Cohen, you tell someone, you will at least get a button. <laughs> do you check most... their ID? Yes, of course. Anyone could say they're Josh Cohen. Well, we were on our way out. I, t- I took a friend and she was like, do you want to get a, a magnet for Ben? And I was like, no, I think it would be too awkward. Like, it's too close. But like, it's sort of like it would feel like sort of like cheating on him a little bit. Like, with, with a Josh <laughs> with Cohen. A Josh Cohen. <laughs> like, you know, Seth Cohen is obviously my number one. Obviously. <laughs> so what's the plan for the play? Where does it go? Where does it go from here? Well, you know, we were fortunate enough. We we only thought we were supposed to go to February, and we extended and extended now till April, um, fortunately. And now, uh, world takeover essentially. We we <laughs> there there's a, a bunch of theaters that want to do it around the country. There's uh, there's there's touring in the works. Um, there's uh, even bigger things like looking at it as a film, or like a lot of shows now are being recorded and. And presented so like uh, can reach a wider audience around the country who are loving to watch theater now, and also there's talk of it. You know, can it translate to television? Um, can you tell us have a show about a guy who sort of talks to himself a year ago and sort of watches himself go through like a a, a, a kind of Jewish How I Met Your Mother meets Seinfeld or something, um, and then a kind of Jewish a Jewish Seinfeld. Yeah, Jewish, 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 that, which you're is a thinking double of, negative. That's right. Essentially, when you're thinking of taking the show on the road, are, are you kind of thinking about how they're this, thinking Peoria, Illinois? Right. Yeah, totally. How would Lewis. this sensibility you think translate uh, to to other cities? Well, you know, it's interesting. You don't actually have to just there, there's Cohen in the title, but we have found that people who are not Jewish respond to it very well too. Our actually our first commercial producer we ever had was uh, like a. a someone who was from China who thought that the family resembled her family. Of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think the show can play in, in major metropolitan cities, of course, where there is a Jewish population. But I think there is something universal to the story. And you'll see when you come see it that like, even though there's a, a the cast is seven people, they play over 55 different characters. Uh-huh. So this show will wind up being done, I, we expect, in high schools and JCCs and uh, community theaters. At French and, Woods. At French Woods. I can't wait to see that. Before. Oh, my God. Are you like kind of like you're the returning heroes? If you go to French Woods now, like there's no one bigger than you. Well, there is because Adam Levine also went there. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck that guy. Wait, <laughs> what has he ever done? Uh, no, the other Adam. Yeah, the, <laughs> the Maroon 5. So Adam. can you give us a t- because I know our listeners are going to hear this, are going to rush to get there before it leaves New York yes. or see it in other studios. Can you give us like a little a, a song, t- a song, something? 
I know it's early. Uh, it, it's hard to do acapella. It's not, you know, that's that's. We've got an amazing play. album that people can listen to if they wanted to to hear about it, filled with big Broadway stars and big life stars. Oh yeah! Before we cast the show, we wanted to make an album, so we went in the studio and we had created the show called "Don't Quit Your Night Job," which was sort of this after-hours variety show. We raised tons of money for ch- a great charity, Open Doors, and all the stars from their shows would come after their shows and be part of this. They would do improvs and musical mad libs i'd come out and like get a mad lib and then sting would come out and sing like every breath you take with the new words and all these people had been fans of us and come and seen the show and loved it so they all came into the studio so the best example you can do is go listen to this album as kelly o'hara and Cheetah rivera and sutton foster and brian darcy james and James Iglehart from Hank Azaria, right? Hank Azaria, Hank Azaria Jimmy Simpson, James Roday. So where do people go listen to that? Anywhere you can stream music or you can buy a CD. Stream music. Ooh, a music. CD. Yes. No. That's with a computer. Which will right, be... Right, 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 on a computer. Which will be yeah. the one thing that remains in your apartment when it is robbed. Exactly. Yeah. David Rosmer, Steve Rosen, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Um, the other Josh Cohen, see it while you can. Ouch. That one stung, but I stuck it out. It's been said that persistence pays And the singles were out in droves Cause they know they've only got six days Desperation's a cheap alone I struck out, but what's most unfair Here's the part where I get home What the hell? And nothing I owned was That's Steve and David. They play Josh Cohen and Josh Cohen in The Other Josh Cohen. The show is running in New York through April 7th. You can get your tickets at otherjoshcohen.com. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So guys, uh, you can see us live. We're going to be at various places. Stephanie, where are you going to be? Tonight, the night this episode airs, March 28th, I will be at the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book event, which I moderate at the Jewish Museum. This week, I'll be talking to Nathan Englander about his new novel, Kaddish.com, which is excellent, and Rebecca Sofer about Modern Loss, the book she co-wrote and which she spoke about on this podcast with Gabby Berkner, her, her co-writer. The event is free, and you can reserve your spot at the Jewish Museum website. And then on Monday, April 1st, tri-state area fans of our 100 Most Jewish Foods episode can join Alana Newhouse for a conversation at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. It's about understanding and loving and sometimes hating Jewish food. And she'll be up there with Jeffrey Yaskowitz, Nama Sheffi, and Gabriella Gershenson, all of whom you heard on last week's show. You can get your ticket at jccmanhattan.org. Excellent. I, myself, uh, I'm giving a few talks in the next couple months. I'll be at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts on April 11th. I know we have fans in Western New England, so come on down and see me. I would love that. On April 28th, I'll be doing One Day University again in New York City. I'll be talking about American Jews. Where are we now? You can find out more at OneDayU.com. And on May 30th, I will be emceeing the gala of our sponsor, Hebrew College. They're doing a storytelling gala. They're going to have some people from their community get up and tell moth-style stories that evening. It'll be very exciting. It's May 30th. For more information, go to Hebrew College's website. Drew McGarry is a columnist for GQ and Deadspin and the author of novels like The Postmortal and The Fall and the memoir Someone Could Get Hurt, a memoir of 21st century parenthood. Hi, Drew. Hi. How are you guys doing? We are good. We're really excited to have you on the show. We've wanted to have you on for a while. Um, and you actually wrote a column this week that is just like the perfect jumping off point. Um, it's called why won't the mayo bullies leave us alone? And the first sentence is, I hate mayonnaise. So Yeah. Disgusting. Mayonnaise is like a deeply un-Jewish food. You're our Gentile of the week, but we feel you on that. You're really like, you're with our people on that. Yeah, and I grew up in the Midwest too. So as a Midwestern goy, I'm like 90% mayonnaise anyway. And yet, (laughs) it's disgusting. It's like being served my own blood. No, thank you. I, I more or less agree. Once in a while, I don't mind it as a, as a moistener, as they say. Oh, um, to, to, <laughs> way to bring it down. But, but <laughs> it is my perception that in the Midwest, if one grows up gentilically as you did, they put mayonnaise in every, I mean, everything's a casserole with like jello, tuna fish and mayonnaise, right? I mean, you, that was a real disability for you di- dietetically. 
Uh, it was, except the only people who weren't mayonnaise bullies in my lifetime were my parents. I told them I didn't like it, and they didn't give me mayonnaise. Funny how that works. Mm. But everyone else, you tell them, and they're like, well, like what you said. You're like, well, moistens safe. I can moisten crap other way. I don't know, like, like they add, they're like, but it's a binding agent. They're like Yoda talking about the force. It's like, well, just... Just leave it alone. I don't want it binding my food. I don't want it in every aspect of my food. It's disgusting. Mayonnaise leads to spam. Spam leads. It's great. So, see, reading your essay, I actually realized something really important that I hadn't realized before, that there's actually kind of an interesting nexus between Midwestern and and Israeli food, because in Israel, we put mayo on everything. You just call it tahini? No, we call So when you're in the army, you get bread with something called sandwich spread. <laughs> and sandwich spread is mayo with bits of like processed like peas and frozen carrots. It's oh. disgusting and amazing. That's deeply That's what disturbing. we eat too. Disgusting. Make you honorary British people for that. <laughs> so this is actually your second hot food, hot take on food um, this year. You yes. Wrote, so you're really on fire. Um, you wrote something that really roiled our, our Facebook page. Um, people were sharing it like left and right. It's called Bagel Sandwiches. Why? And it's all about how, <laughs> I, I, if, I, if I may read a, a beautiful bit from it. You By all read, means. You and you, you know, you know, you say, please note that I issue this take as a card carrying Gentile and someone who has never actually made a bagel from scratch. So you really sort of clear the air on that. But you say. The standard operating procedure of most bagel shops is to serve your bagel and smoked salmon as a full-on sandwich with the cream cheese and smoked fish jammed inside the full bagel. This, in my opinion, this is, in my opinion, a suboptimal way of enjoying a bagel. Bagel sandwiches are dumb. Yes, bagel sandwiches are dumb was the original headline, but we changed it. That didn't make people less mad when we changed the headline anyway. They were like SEO, clicky. See, this is really interesting because I feel like you are culinarily speaking quite Jewish at heart because – and I'm I'm about to – I don't know how my Jewish co-hosts are going to react when I say this. I don't think of – I think of bagel sandwiches as a goyish way of eating a bagel. Like growing up – you got bagels at the bagel store. You sliced them in half. You toasted them. You took them out, and you you put some some cream cheese on each half, and maybe some tomato or lox, and you ate it. The idea that you'd put it in a sandwich feels very like post two thousand five like spread of Lenders bagels or Brugers to America. It like made it palatable for the goyim in Iowa, right? Like, so I'm with you there. I think that you know real bagel eating is slicing it in half, toasting both halves, and eating it. So. Uh, I mean, kudos to you. I think the Jews need to hear your message is what I'm saying. Uh, Well, thank you. I agree that I'm right. (laughs) It's not just that the Jews need to hear a message. And Mark, what you said, I think is absolutely correct. The bagel has now become America's, you know, pastry. Well, it's It's, like pizza. Yeah, it's no longer a Jewish thing. It's only fitting that Drew McGarry is the new king of bagel. We pass on the baton. Uh, It's yours now. If you're ever in New York, come eat bagels with us. But I want to talk to you about some of the other things you write because you don't just write hot takes on on snack food. Um, You have written this book that I really enjoy called Someone Could Get Hurt, a memoir of 21st century parenthood. And I'll tell you my own personal experience with it, which is I read it about a year and a half ago. Okay. Loved it. Uh, Sold it to the used bookstore because, you know, I wasn't going to reread it. And then when we found- Yeah. And then when we found out we were having you on the show, I wanted it back to reread it. So I went to the used bookstore. They didn't have it anymore. So I bought another copy. So you've gotten two sales retail from mm. me. Um, Love it. And I think it's interesting. You and and Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal are both sports writers who have now written parenting stuff. Correct. And 
I'm intrigued by the move there. Um, I, I sometimes get the feeling that sports writing is populated by people who are sort of only incidentally interested in sports. Like, it's fine. <laughs> there's a career writing about it. But actually, you have other things to say. I mean, you've written a sci-fi novel and you've written about parenting. And like, how much do you actually care about sports? Oh, I love sports. I mean, one of the reasons I write for Deadspin, one of the reasons I started as a reader and a commenter at Deadspin first, uh, and one of the reasons Deadspin exists was because not that sports writers uh, didn't have, weren't interested in sports, but that the nature of the job eventually like led them to hating sports because they, you know, they hated being in a, you know, being in a press box until 1 a.m. watching like an extra innings baseball game and having to file on deadline. And so they end up resenting the very thing that they're supposed to be covering, which is great if you're covering politics. But, you know, if you're if you're a sports fan, yeah, you want you want the person covering the sport. You want the sense that they actually like the sport, not to the degree that insane football people. Right. Like, you know, parse Kyler Murray, you know, what he had for lunch and all that stuff or, you know, analyzes bagel takes and then knock him down draft board. But no, I like sports. So wait a second. You worked your way from commenter. Were you already a professional writer, but then on your downtime, you were giving free commentary to the comment section on Deadspin? Or were you like, you know, selling life insurance and then they realized this guy in the comment section actually has a really good voice? How did that work? I was a copywriter. I wrote ads. Um, I worked in an ad agency. I had my own blog back when Blogger was sort of nascent and starting up where I would write about being a dad because I just had my first kid. And uh, back in the day, if you commented on Deadspin and someone clicked on your name in the comments, it took the it went right to your whatever website you wanted. So you could essentially, you know, this is gross sounding, but it was an exercise in self branding where you, if you left a clever comment, people would click through and go to your blog and give it traffic and read your stuff. And uh, that was how I got to know Will Leach, the founder of Deadspin. And I started KSK, which was its own football site, and he liked that. And then I got a job writing at Deadspin through that. But yeah, I started as a lowly commenter. That's so that, – and that's like – could that even happen today? I don't know. Are there people moving up from the comment section on anything or from their own blogs into – or it has to be on social media now, I guess. You move from Twitter to getting a writing career, right? That's right. Yeah, it's more social media driven now. We still – there are – I have colleagues who started in the comment section at Deadspin – uh, and, but I know other people who have gotten jobs off of Twitter and the guy who is now interim, uh, I don't, I don't want to say CEO, I'm going to get the title wrong, but the guy who is now, uh, interim head of SB nation, he was discovered via Twitter. So it does, it does happen a lot now. That's nothing. I know a guy who like became president off of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, not a good dad. You know, you know, let's, let's, stick, let's stick to people who spend time Although with their kids. Although he did say to Howard Stern that he loves his daughter very, very much. Very, very, very so, much. So, Drew, as our Gentile of the Week, you are, you know, able to ask us a question about Judaism, about anything that's going on um, related to Jews. How much driving do I have to do during bat mitzvah season? Am I hosed? Yeah, you're kind of hosed. I mean... Um, so, how old are your kids? My daughter is 13, so it's... So, she's it's, in it. Yeah, she's right. about to be in, into the weeds. It is on, right? Well, I mean, does she? Does she? Do you let her hang out with Jews? I mean, does she know a lot of Jewish? Kids? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Are yeah. you in one of those suburbs that's actually filled with Jews? Yeah, I uh, I live in suburban Maryland, and yes, there are there are yeah. Jews here. Yeah, people. there are there are Hebrews there. So um, I will just interestingly, I've been down to a, greater Washington for my daughter's bat mitzvah season. My daughter goes to Camp Ramah in New England, whose conservative Jewish district is New England plus greater D.C. because New York and Pennsylvania in the middle have their own camp 
camp uh, situation. So right. I've been down to D.C. for that. I've been up to Boston a couple times. I've been to Hartford. Yeah, you could end up doing a lot of driving. I mean, what you need is um, you need some good books. But here's the thing, and I say this as someone who's read your books and I know that you, like the rest of us parents, value time away from the sort of hubbub of the immediate family. It's time like it's time for you and your daughter. You go off, you leave early in the morning, you drive, then you go to Starbucks for five hours or whatever. And you just chillax. Like you don't have to stay at the synagogue. Uh, Lord knows some of the Jewish parents don't. So, you know, you see it as time away from the other two kids and your wife and you can make a make a thing out of it. We could write you a note, by the way, if you want to sit it out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, we, no. We hereby I, I mean, affirm when that- I was a kid I went to a lot as a kid, and I, I you know, it's like a it's like a wedding where you're you're waiting for the party afterward. Totally, you know, totally. But but I remember I remember enjoying this. I mean, enjoying is a strong word. I remember <laughs> not. I remember in, in surviving I remember rec- the ceremony, recognizing that it was a thing that happened. Well, right. you know, I have to say, like, I have very. I grew up on Long Island, where I had a bar mitzvah like six times in a weekend. It was the highlight of my social life. Everything went downhill after eighth grade. But I have these like very fond memories of my dad picking us up after like the afternoon party or even the night party and like taking us to the diner and then waiting while we went to the diner and then like driving us all home. And it was just like to me, it's still like one of the sweetest things he did. That was like a Saturday night at like midnight. He just like let us feel like we were grown up by going to the diner. And then drove us all home. Oh, Dad! By the so way, now we're going to a diner. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I want some eggs. And I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to tell you something that you're going to be so grateful for, which is you may have asked yourself, or you may be about to ask yourself, what is the appropriate gift for a bat mitzvah? And I'm going to give you. I'm not from New York. I'm I'm from small town New England. So the answer is a check in a multiple of eighteen. Because that's the Jewish, you know, numerological number for for life and good luck. Oh. So eighteen dollars, and if you're feeling really generous, thirty six. It varies between suburbs, yeah, to be honest. But you don't have to go above that. I'm telling you, thirty six dollars, and and don't let anyone tell you it has to be one hundred eighty or whatever, because you know it might be for Sheldon Adelson's kids, but uh, or Robert Kraft's, but for the circles so. in which your daughter travels, I'm telling you, thirty six is a perfectly generous gift. Oh, or, or, or or copies of your book. Yeah, or copy if someone could get hurt. <laughs> I swear, I'm not that guy. I'm not like, I could give you my book. If we want more Drew McGarry in our lives, uh, what do you have a website? That we should, where should we send people if we're sending them to one place? My day jobs are Deadspin and GQ, so I have to say two places, which is terrible. Deadspin and GQ. Uh, Drew McGarry, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. It's been terrific talking to you. Yeah, please, anytime. Thank you for having me. All right, talk to you later. Take care. Take care, Bye. bye. Tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Stephanie, what do we have? This voicemail is in response to our 100 Most Jewish Foods episode. I wanted to share this memory of my dad, who was born in Baghdad and moved here in his 20s in the early 1950s. But homesick, he developed a real ability to cook Iraqi food. My dad would pickle everything. And his favorite was mahalala, which are pickled beets. And because we also had family who grew up in Bombay, the extended Iraqi Jewish community had trading communities, especially wherever the British Empire was. We he had those foods as well. And so he would always buy the pickled mango, which was awesome. He would make the Iraqi harosef with the date syrup. And we and our kids his grandkids loved it more than the Ashkenazi Herosef. But his PS de Rizostones, the thing that he was known for, was his kibbe. 
and he would make kibbe as a meatloaf, not little uh, skewers or little balls, but as a meatloaf. It was a combination of veal and lamb, but what made it so terrific was a middle layer that had uh, ground uh, sultanas, the uh, yellow raisins, uh, and almonds seasoned with cardamom. Oh, and the, the, the lamb and the veal would have a little bit of bulgur wheat. So that was an amazing kibbe, and that was the thing that we all lived for. That's that's a very sweet voicemail. I love our listeners so much. But at the end of the day, what I'm going to remember a week from now is that he has a dad from Baghdad. And he has, he has and a Baghdad. A Baghdadi. If I had a dad from Baghdad, I would just call him, yo, I would just like be, yo, Baghdad, Baghdadi. I would I would work that forever. That Bag would never Daddy. get old. Bag-zaddy. If you have mail for us, we have eyes and ears for your mail. You can write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. Stephanie and Liel, have ye any Mazel Tovs this week? I do. So, Stephanie, did your high school have a uh, senior like play like a drama that a drama club performed? Yeah, it was called Stages, and they like wrote a play. They wrote a play. Uh, Mark, what what did your high school do? Uh, seniors got to direct one act. It was like a, a privilege that, as a senior, if you'd been really active in theater, you got you got a slot in the one act festival. But usually, it's like stuff like you know, My Fair Lady or yeah, Oklahoma yeah, yeah. or stuff like yeah. that. So. I see that, and I raise you this week, North Bergen High School in New Jersey, as the final production of the high school drama club, staged Alien, the amazing movie with Sigourney Weaver, as a drama on stage for their high school. If you go online and look at this thing, it is one of the most stunning, like theatrical productions. Forget high school. Like they created the alien, like alien monster, the whole spaceship. It just looks incredible. Kids, it actually explodes out of someone's belly. No, no spoilers. They had, they had the face huggers. They had everything. Like, I can't tell you how happy this makes me and how, uh, secure that the next generation may be okay. Mazel tov. My mazel tov this week is for Jess Knackman and Eric Wasserstrom. They got married this weekend. They're in the Times. Check it out. And Eric's mother, Harriet, is a fan of our show. And she came to our live show in New York when she was in town from Houston. Aww. And it's just so fun. They did a really fun dance. It was like a, a slow, a first dance. It was a slow dance. And then it broke out into Lady Gaga's bad romance to this crazy dance. <laughs> I wasn't there, but I saw videos. <laughs> Mazel tov to Harriet, the the proud mom. I, I have a few. I have an omnibus uh, uh, crestomathy wrap up Mazel Tov. A Mazel Tov to Sarah Gottesman's sister Bela and her husband Luis who just got his green card. True love will prevail. Bela and Luis Mazel Tov to both of you. Also, uh, our editor Sophia says that her friend Joey Pear has a Kickstarter up for his comic book about his father. Mazel Tov to Joey Pear. That's P-E-R-R. Kickstarter has lots of fun stuff on projects like uh, like comics, graphic novels, art. Check that one out. A mazel tov to our listener, Nick Holden, whose niece kicked him out of every Facebook group, I guess trying to save him from the, the social media tentacles, and he reapplied to our Facebook group. He, he couldn't handle being off social media if it meant being away from uh, the J. Crew. So if you're our listener and are not on the Facebook group, know that there are some listeners who are twice on the Facebook group. You're That's really right. behind. <laughs> Uh, our producer, Josh Yehoshua Cross with a K, his son, Miles with an M Cross, was admitted to the Bronx High School of Science. You might have heard of it. And all Josh had to do is pay $350,000 to the lacrosse team. At- In podcast advertising. <laughs> That's right. 
He said, I can get you 17 slots on the unorthodox, the mid-roll and the post-roll. <laughs> so Mazel Tov, uh, Miles. Add a Mazel Tov to her producer, Sarah Fredman, Ader's mother, Adina Fredman, who read Megillat Esther. She read the um, Purim Megillah at a maximum security women's prison last week. Oh, Doing the Lord's work. Mazel Tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter, and you should, by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live. If that sounds appealing to you, you know, if you live in a place that could use more of us, book us by writing to producer Josh Cross at jcross, cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You should wear and carry Unorthodox, too. We have onesies, t-shirts. Uh, we're going to get nightcaps and and union suits and other kinds of strange retro steampunk wear. Uh, it's at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. You can follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. You can join our Facebook group and you ought. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our Editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Karen Breutman, who should bring us to her shul on Martha's Vineyard, just because it's pretty there. We come to you from Argo Studios, which is the third Josh Cohen. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>